Hi, thanks for joining us again. And we are going to take our Bibles and go to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 5, and our study called The Wilderness Wanderings. It's a study through the book of Numbers and just understanding a little bit more about what God has for this camp and what God has for our lives. As we look into this section of Numbers chapter 5, there's a little transition that takes place. God is going to, he's given the marching orders, he's given perspective to the camp, given uh, responsibilities. Now he's going to take a little bit of time and give a little bit more clarification on some of the laws that he's already given in the book of Leviticus and even in Exodus as well. So he's going to take a little bit of time there. Now, I don't know about you, but do you remember the first time that you dropped a stone into the water and you noticed that that stone had an impact upon the water? We call it the ripple effect. Maybe you don't remember, but maybe you remember a time as a child or maybe even now as an adult, you like to, to drop in a stone or you like to drop in a bigger stone. I remember trying to drop in the biggest stones I could carry just to see how big of an effect I could get. And we, we understand how the ripple effect works, and you can look into all the scientific data and, and understand that. But when we talk about the nation of Israel in camp, as we talk about what has been happening, the ripple effect has occurred. The holiness of God has been dropped right into the center of camp. Do you remember how camp is laid out? We've been talking about it. It's, it's, there's like these concentric circles of holiness in the camp. You start in the center of camp, in the middle of the tabernacle, in the most holy place, you have the Holy of Holies. And then even last week as we talked, it backs out to the holy place. And in the holy place, there's some other of the instruments of uh, the tabernacle that are used to worship God. And then there's a, there's a little bit further out to the courtyard. And then from the courtyard, you're going to have the Levites. And from the Levites, you have the rest of camp. And then outside of camp. And you have this, this almost like this ripple effect because the holiness of God has been dropped straight into the center of camp. As God is present there, he is having an impact or is to have an impact upon camp. As we, as we look through Numbers chapter 5, notice how there's, there's three different sections that we're going to see here. And in these three sections, they all start the same way. And the Lord spoke to Moses. This is God giving clear instruction. God telling Moses, I'm going to give you some of the law, some of the responsibilities that the people are to enact and to have, and I want to make sure that they are followed, that they are obeyed. We're going to see in verses 1 to 4, he's going to talk about the physical purity of the camp. In verses 5 to 10, he's going to talk about the spiritual purity in the camp. And then in verses 11 to 31, some really difficult, uh, a really difficult passage to deal with and interpret. He's going to talk about relational or marital purity in the camp. And so as we look at that, all three of these, we must understand, we must come first with this understanding that this is what God has commanded. This is what God has said. These are God's expectations for the camp of Israel as they are camped around the tabernacle in the wilderness. And so what does God, what does God expect? And, and even it goes beyond that. I shouldn't just say it's just for that time. The, the truce went beyond it for Israel even into their temple period and beyond. And there's great principles for us to learn from, as we'll talk about here in a few minutes, even today from this chapter. When I was uh, working uh, one summer at camp as a, a camp counselor, I worked there uh, in a camp in north, the northwest of Wisconsin. It was called Camp Shatek. 
It's actually a place God really used to work in my heart and move me and call me into ministry. Uh, but they had a, a unique thing that they did. It's not unique to them. A lot of Christian camps do this. But it was called cabin cleanup. And in cabin cleanup, every morning, we were responsible as counselors to have our cabin clean up not just tidy up, but clean up their cabin. We had to sweep. We had to make all the beds. We had to make sure everybody's stuff was put back away, all the candy wrappers that the kids were eating in the middle of the night, all that was put away. Now, I know it sounds like a great idea to make sure we keep the camp clean, but when your responsibility is a bunch of middle school boys or high school boys, it's really not that simple. So think about this. They expected college guys who live in dorm rooms who typically don't make sure things are clean. They expected us to ensure that middle school and high school boys, in my case, were making sure that their cabins were clean. It was not very successful. And on top of that, the incentive for keeping a cabin clean was simply you got a few more points for your team for the week. It's like, who cares? So they realized that this was not working very well, so they changed the incentive. Whoever had the worst cabin, they had the responsibility to clean what they called the skunk house or the bathrooms. And so during the first part of your free time, whoever had the worst cabin, they had to go during the first part of their free time and clean. That, That helped a little bit more. But when we look at this idea of cleaning up camp, God has given a greater incentive for the nation of Israel to clean up camp uh, for, the, for the children of Israel. He says in verse number three, he says, I want you to do this because I am in your midst. I am at the center. I am present. And God's presence should always be a reminder and an incentive for our holiness. So God is present He's not just present in the midst of the tabernacle or then in the midst of the temple. God is present within us. God is around us. God is everywhere. We know that. So that ought to be a a constant driving reminder and an incentive to say, wait, our holy God is present and he expects me to be living holy. And so God takes this, this perspective and he says, I want you to really think about holiness in regard, in light of these three different areas, the physical uncleanness of the camp, the spiritual uncleanness, uh, unholiness, and then the fa- relational unfaithfulness that's, that's occurring in the camp. And so he says, I want you to remember, I am in your midst. So that is their incentive as they go to uh, the book of Numbers is saying, God is here. God is present and he is in our midst. So let's look at those sections real quick. Let's look at the first section, physical uncleanness. Verses 1 to 4, God is going to lay out. He's going to say, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Commanding the children of Israel that they put out of camp, outside of camp, every leper and everyone that has an issue and whoever is defiled by the dead. Both male and female shall you put out. Without the camp you shall put them. And they shall defile not their camp in the midst whereof I dwell. And the children of Israel did so, and they put them out without the camp. As the Lord spake unto Moses, so did the children of Israel. So what, what, what occurs here? We see that this is not dealing with whether or not they washed very well. It's, it's not the perspective here. They are looking and they are saying that the focus is on the watch care of the community concerning these communicable diseases. You might be like, wait, what? I hear this term all the time. 
What do, what do you mean these communicable? We're, we're in the midst of dealing with a communicable disease, aren't we? We, we really are. But what is, what is being said here? Look at, look at the different texts. Verse 2, he talks about the leper. Now, if you're like me, we've always heard this concept that the leper, you know, the, the skin's falling off, the fingers are falling off, the nose falls off, the ears fall off, the skin flesh is eaten away, and that's leprosy. Well, that is true. That's often what we call Hansen's disease. But this is dealing with skin diseases. We often think of just Hansen's disease or where the, the flesh is rotting. And that, that, that did occur. That was real. And that is still a real disease today. But the term for leprosy is not simply that one specific uh, disease. It is a term that is an umbrella term. For skin diseases, it covers areas even like eczema, psoriasis, chicken pox, the, the, the little the, the rashes, the skin rashes. There's lots of different skin diseases that would fall under the umbrella of leprosy. In fact, go, go back to Numbers chapter, or Leviticus, excuse me, chapter 13 with me. Leviticus chapter 13 is where the, uh, the priests are given instruction concerning leprosy or concerning skin diseases. And you'll notice in verses two, verse two, it's going to talk about that if there's a, you know, the flesh is rising, there's a scab or a bright spot. And they say, okay, you're going to observe it. You're going to look at it to the priest. God's telling the priest, look at the disease, look at the scabs, look at how the hair is shaped. Is it white? Is it black? Is it uh, oozing? Is it not? Is it scabbing over? All these different things are, are all the way through this, this chapter. But it also then tells you what is to happen. And a lot of times it's put them out of camp. You're going to isolate. You're going to observe them. You're going to isolate them. But look at, look at verse, the end of verse 4 of Leviticus 13. It says, you shall shut him up for seven days. And if it still exists at the end of verse 5, seven more days. But when they come back at the end of verse 6, then they shall be clean. They weren't, they weren't just ostracized from camp forever. In fact, you can go through this. It happens a number of times. The end of verse 15, it says this is a leprosy. It doesn't say leprosy. It's a type of skin, skin disorder. But it says in verse 16, whatever this situation was in this one, if the raw flesh turn again and be changed back into white or to normal flesh, you shall come to the priest. And what is the priest to do at the end of verse 17? He pronounces them clean. Well, when they're clean, they're allowed back into camp. So this concept that sometimes we teach or have taught or thought that as soon as somebody has a, this idea of being out of camp, this idea of having leprosy, we've just taught it's just this one type and kick them out and they're gone forever. They're completely unclean always. It's not always the case. Sometimes they were, they were observed, they were isolated, and then they were allowed back into to the society. And so that happens with the flesh, the, the leper, the skin diseases. He says if there's a skin disease that is communicable, that can be passed around, he tells the priest how to deal with it, you put them, put them out of camp for a set period of time. When it's no longer the case, you allow them back in. He says then in verse 2 again, that if anyone in the King James it says has an issue, has an issue. Well, the term issue here in Numbers 5, and I'm going to find it there again. I should have marked my place. There we go, Numbers chapter 5. Uh, Anyone that has an issue. The idea here is the word has the idea of a discharge. Something that is oozing from the flesh. And it, it covers a lot of medical issues. But it could cover things such as STDs. It could cause about, talk about oozing sores. Or anything that has that potential infectious ability. If they have that, 
there to go out. And when it is taken care of, when it is gone, they would be allowed back in. But they were again put out of camp for the protection of the camp. That's verse number three is going to highlight that in a second here. It also talks about the touching of a corpse at the end of verse two. Anyone that, whoever is defiled by the dead. Now, it's not just talking about touching simply dead flesh because we do touch dead flesh every time you eat meat. It is dead flesh. Every time the Jews would eat, it's dead flesh. But it's dealing with the idea of a body, animal, human, that has just died or is in the process of dying. Why would they do that? Again, death is not this glory. We, we often think of the movie where they just sit there, they rest, their eyes go quietly, and everybody just dies in a peaceful stillness. For those of you who've had to go through this with a loved one or you've been around when someone has passed, it's not always a pretty sight. Sometimes it's very difficult in in bodily fluids and uh, coughing and hacking, and there's a lot of that potential. So is, is this saying that if you helped with when your grandfather passed away or when your father passed away and you were around them and you touched the body that you were out of camp forever? No. They're looking and saying just for the safety and the, the, the security of the, the well-being of camp, we're going to put you out of camp for a set time to make sure that you are not carrying any communicable disease, and then we're going to allow you back into camp. So that was the process. That was the habit that occurred with these, these individuals. Now, what is God desiring? What is, what is God saying? When we look at this passage, he was looking and we look at even what he requires in Leviticus and uh, with, the, with the priests and what they were supposed to be doing with the individuals. They are to be isolated and observed. If you have one of these potentially fatal or communicable diseases that could spread wildly throughout camp, he says, I want you to, to go out of camp. And then we're going to bring you back into camp when you are clean. So there was isolation and observation. There was the fact that the excommunication, it wasn't gender specific. In fact, it was all people's responsibility to make sure that they were keeping camp clean. To look and say, oh no, I have a sore. Some of these sores that it, that it talks about are not sores that everybody would see in public. You would have them clothed. You, normally people, so it was my responsibility when I noticed a sore or an oozing pustule or a, uh, a skin disorder that was on my body. The, the, most of the people don't see that. I have a responsibility to go to the priest. Why would I do that? Because I have a concern and a respect for the other people in my tribe, in my nation, So I'm going to go to them, and if I have to isolate and I have to be observed from a distance for a little bit, then I would do that. It was everyone, man and woman, male and female. There was was no distinction between. It was their responsibility to keep the camp clean because God says, I am here in your midst, and I am a holy God, and you are to separate the, the uncleanness from me, even the physical. And God desires that. The goal was not allow to allow defilement in the camp, uh, it was to, a concern for others. Now, yes, there, God wanted the defilement out. He did. But he also is saying, why are we doing this? Because, verse 3, that they defile not their camp. Not just a, oh no, there's, there's sin in the camp. It doesn't use a picture of sin here. It's talking about these physical issues. He's saying, so that the well-being of the others your neighbors, your friends, 
your other community, your other family members in your clan, that you're, that you're out, that you're away so that you don't pass and share something to them. So what did they do? <laughs> Basically, they quarantined and social distanced. I know, we don't like to hear those terms right now, but what is God telling them to do? He's telling them, hey, get out. God was not just concerned about the hygienic cleanliness of the camp, but also its holiness. And we're going to talk about it because he's going to lead right into the next section where we'll talk about. But I want to just real quick, think about that for a second, that God is the one here to the nation of Israel. He says, and I think there's a good principle here. He looks at them and says, if you're sick or if there's a potential that you do have it, get it checked out. And if you do, then stay away. The whole concept, I remember pastor when this, the whole COVID thing first started, someone saying, well, if I have COVID, you can't stop me from coming to church. I believe that flies completely in the face of what God is saying here. God is saying, if you knew you have COVID, then you shouldn't come to the community of believers that God has placed you in. You should distance. I think even pre-COVID, pre-COVID, we, you heard talk about, talked about before, if you're sick, then it's not wrong to not come to church. If, if you have something that you could potentially pass on to somebody, then why would you come in and say, well, I can't forsake the assembling of myself together. That's what God commands. Well, God is also laying out the principle here to the camp, to the nation of Israel. When they are unclean, they can't come to worship. When they were unclean and put out of the camp, they don't have the fellowship with the people that they wanted to. One of the reasons was because they were to care and have care and concern for the other people in their community, in their camp. I don't don't think you can get around that at all. But we've heard enough on that for right now, and and probably some of you are ready to turn me off because we just talked about social distance, and we just talked about the idea of isolation and quarantining and and all that. So let's, let's move forward. God says, okay, I'm concerned about the physical purity of the camp, but he also then looks and says, I am truly concerned about the spiritual holiness of the camp. We can look. All, sin is a human problem, is it not? We, are, we sin because we are sinners. The spiritual uncleanliness in our, you can go right through, whatever it is, if it's greed, if it's lying, if it's racism, if it's a lack of respect for the authorities that have been placed over us, civil authorities, police officers, if it's human traffic, trafficking, if it's just dishonesty and cheating, all of those, those problems, they, they're all sin. And we have those difficulties because our nature is to sin. And so God understands that we are going to struggle with that because we've been cursed into sin through Adam. It's, it's there. So what does he do? He's going to talk about what happens when you sin. So he tells, he tells the nation, In verses 5 to 10, let's talk about your spiritual cleanliness. What do you do? Well, look in verse number 6. It says, Speak unto the children of Israel. So this is God telling Moses again, Speak to the children of Israel. And when a man or a woman shall commit any sin that that, that mankind commits, to do a trespass against the Lord, and that person be guilty, then what should they do? And he's going to tell them how to go about it. When he starts off very, very clearly here, that when we look at humanity, humanity has this issue. It's a sin problem. And with this sin problem, we sin. And he says, sin is not gender specific. He says, when a man or a woman sin. 
Sin is uh, going to enter into your life at times. God understood that. He understood that you and I would battle with sin and at times we would fall. And so when we fall, what do we do? Sin is not beyond any believer. You can't look and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond that. I have arrived. I have ascended. I have reached this entire perfection here on earth. So I don't struggle with sin anymore. You struggle with pride then because we all struggle with sin. So the sin that, that mankind commits, he's like, it could be any sin. But when we commit a sin, we sin because we are sinners. It's a human problem. And so, so we see all those things I just said. I forgot I put them up on the screen. Uh, spiritual spiritual uh, cleanliness. Sin is a human problem, but it is also a divine offense. It's ultimately against God. He says that when they trespass, uh, they sin against man, the, the sin that man commits, verse 6, to do a trespass against the Lord. Our sin is against the Lord. We are found guilty, it says, because when we sin, the just judge is able to look and say, you are guilty. And we know we are guilty. The God, God uses the Spirit to convict us, to bring about guilt, but it's also used to prompt us to repentance, to go before God and say, this was wrong, not just against the guy that I ripped off or the person I stole from or the person I cheated, but also... It's a, it's a prompt to say, take care of that sin. Because as we look at, we look at sin, it's a sin needs to be addressed. It's a reconcilable offense. Your sin, my sin, whatever it may be, is reconcilable before God. Check out the next verse, verse 7. What should they do if they are guilty of sin? Then they shall confess their sin, which they have done. And he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof and add unto it a fifth part thereof and give it unto him against who he, whom he has trespassed. But if a man have no kinsman to recompense the trespass unto the Lord, let the trespass, that sin, be recompensed unto the Lord, even then to the priests, besides the ram of atonement, whereby an atonement shall be made for him. What, what, what God is laying out is he's, he's telling the Jews how to live when you have wronged somebody, when you have sinned against them. You sin, you deal with it, you realize that it is before the man and before God. You address it, you go before them to reconcile, to repent because you are guilty, but then to go before them and confess. Confess the sin which has been done. In verse 7, it talks about go to them. The one, and the one who you have trespassed against, they know what it is. So you confess the sin which has been done. You confess, your confession should include restitution. It's not just looking and saying, well, I took that guy for a $10,000 ride. Yeah, I feel really bad about it. I'm sorry. It was wrong. It was sin. And then you never, you never repay that. He looks and says, no, you're going to repay it. And he actually tells the Jews to repay it with, with interest. But we should seek to restore. We should seek restitution, if at all possible. Confession should be, when we are truly broken about our sin and we confess it, we should be willing to do more than maybe what is required. That happens often with our sins, where the trust is being earned back, and it's like, oh, I should have earned it back. No, if I'm truly broken about this sin, I'll be willing to do a little bit more. Confession, it should include the wronged party, if possible trying to go to them, 
trying to talk with them, trying to restore with them, if at all possible. Sometimes it's not. And he actually gives, God gives that contingency aspect where he says, if you've monetarily wronged somebody, then he says, if you can't, then they were supposed to take it to the Jews, uh, to the priests, excuse me, and then give it to the priests. And that actually was a way that was provisioned for the priests. Verses 9 and 10, it talks about that. And so God looks and says, when you sin, it is, it is sin. It's going, you're going to struggle with it. It is a divine offense, but it is reconcilable. Take care of it. Repent. Restore. Seek to fix relationships. Go forward and say, this is important for me to do. And then he, he highlights, he says, it must be, sin must be atoned for. It's a coverable offense. Look at, look what he talks about at the end of uh, uh, verse number eight. He talks about that they're supposed to give to the priest besides the ram of atonement. They were supposed to bring, when, when this wrong was done, a burnt offering before the Lord. The offering was that ram of atonement or the kapur, or the, the kafar, the covering. It was that picture of the blood covering the sin. When the individual would bring it, he would press down upon the ram. The idea of the, the word would be the imputation, the putting on of the sin upon the ram. Now, his sin didn't magically transfer from his body to the, to the, the goat or the, the sheep, excuse me. It was a picture of this lamb is taking upon itself my sin. And then it would be sacrificed. It would be offered. What a beautiful picture that shows of Jesus Christ. That Christ as our sacrificial lamb took upon us and it took upon him our sins. And as he died, as he was crucified, as his blood was shed, the atonement for our sins was, was made so that God's wrath was satisfied against our sins. This beautiful picture of Jesus Christ's gift of salvation, his offering of himself as the perfect lamb, as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And that's, that should encourage us as we, as we move forward. Even after salvation, we have the ability to confess our sins to God. And we know that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins. We don't have to bring a continual sacrifice because the ultimate sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ was and has been paid for our sins. But that ought to remind us about our holiness. That when we flippantly enter into sin, do we take advantage of God's grace? Do we look and we say, wow, it doesn't really matter. Christ died for it. It's good. So I'll just live however I want. It was a constant reminder for the Jews as they brought that sacrifice that their sin had to be atoned for. And I'm so thankful that my sin has been paid for. It has been atoned for. It even reminds me in this passage, looking forward, the tabernacle and the church are not the same thing. Our church is not the tabernacle. But there's a really interesting principle that I, I see in this passage. Have you noticed that in the first one, chat verses 1 to 4, when there was this physical uncleanness, they were to be put out of camp. And the emphasis here in this chapter is the restoration. Now, in church discipline, and in sometimes you'll hear the word thrown around, excommunication. We don't practice excommunication where you're just totally gone and never to come back. 
our goal, even in church discipline, even in the process that Matthew 18 lies, uh, lays out, it is the restoration of fallen sinners. It is not to just purge out from among us all sinners, because if that were the case, all sinners would be gone. There would be nobody here at church. But it is the restoration. It is the bringing back. It is when sin has occurred to have sin reconciled, to have believers work through the sin differences, and to have a restoration that occurs within because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because sin is forgiven, because sin is, is atonable and reconcilable. We want to see that. We want to see individuals restored. And then in the second, the second part, or the third part of this p- book, but really it's the majority of the book, God is going to give an illustration, but he's also going to deal with a problem that was occurring within the camp. Verses 11 through 31 all deal with this situation. It's, it's honestly one of the, the hardest passages I personally have ever had to wrestle through and try and figure out what is, what is being said. Because, let's be honest, there are times you read through Scripture and you're like, uh, and wait, all Scripture is profitable for me. Okay, I know that. 2 Timothy 3 tells me that. I know that these things are written as an example. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians specifically about numbers. Okay, so what does this section of Numbers 5 have to do with how it goes? And you'll see here in a moment why I'm talking that. But I think it's important for us to remember that there are things that have happened in the Bible. There are teachings that have occurred, but they do not happen. There are moments that that occurred and they don't continue on. The truths do, the principles continue on. The, what we call oftentimes the trans-dispensational principles, big word that just says these universal principles that go from, that span from the beginning all the way and they will continue to go through life because they are uh, dealing with humanity and we need, to, we need to address them and deal with it. For example, Pentecost. Pentecost happened. We're not gonna sit around here and have cloven tongues like as a fire come upon us. It happened. It does not continually happen. The Red Sea, it happened. It, it does not happen. You can't walk to a body of water, stick in the staff, and there, there it goes. That happened for that moment. Now, there are parallels. There are moments where we talk about our Red Sea crossing in life when we've, we've made this exodus, maybe from our old past to our new life. We talk about those moments where we are just, we feel like we're filled with the Spirit of God and we, we just have this fervor and the zeal and this excitement to go out and boldly proclaim. And, and someone may say, man, this is like a Pentecost experience. It may parallel, but it is not that. Even when we get to the Old Testament law, there are portions of the law where you read and you go, uh, yeah, I, I there are, there are sections that we're dealing with for Israel at that time. That we don't follow those exact uh, laws. That's true. But there are principles that come out of them that we can look at and understand and apply to our life. Because God is a holy God. God is a, a God of all ages. And he says it is profitable for us. So let's look at this passage with that in mind. What, has ha- what happened in this passage and what actually happened for generations in the, in the Jewish culture, we don't practice some of that. But there are some definite principles that we should learn 
from it. So what is the situation? In verse 11 to 14, there is going to be a husband who is suspicious about his wife's faithfulness to him. So the husband believes that his wife has cheated on him. But if you look in verse 11 and 12, there's no way of them knowing it. It has been secret and it, it can't be proven. They're not, he's not sure. He just has this, this nagging suspicion. Uh, the King James uses the word jealousy, but we often think jealousy is that vindictive, that vengeful idea. The word is the idea of suspicion. He's just, he thinks this is happening. And so there's no way for him to find out. He can't shake that spirit of suspicion. He decides that he's going to bring his priest, uh, his wife to the priest for answers. Why? Because he, he doesn't know. He can't get to the bottom of this. And so the priest, having the ability to intercede between they and God to be their mediator, he brings his wife to the priest. Now, if you're like me at this point, our 21st century minds are sticking our fingers in our ears and going, wait a second, something doesn't seem kosher here. What's happening? Why would this be going on? Look at some of the cultural problems that occur in this situation. It's going to deal with suspicion rather than clear-cut guilt. There's no way for a human to prove it. That is, that is the emphasis that is occurring here. There is no way husband to be sure. There's no witnesses. There's no one to, to concretely say, yes, this has happened. So it's all going to be on circumstantial or suspicion, circumstantial evidence or suspicion. There's no guarantee. There's nothing concrete. We would instantly go in our 21st century America. Oh, no, can't prove it. Not happening. Done. Okay. So we look at them. Why would we still be dealing with this? The guilt or the innocence can, um, it is impossible. It, it's impossible. It can be impossible for human, a human tribunal or court uh, to establish because of the secrecy of the offense. They, they can't figure it out. It's impossible. That's what the emphasis is here. That's why they're coming to the priest. The stakes are high. Remember in the Jewish culture, to commit adultery, to be caught in that is a capital offense the man and the woman were to be put to death. So the stakes, the stakes in this are high. Unresolved suspicion, you just say, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to nag at that husband. And what's it going to do to that marriage? It's going to wreck it. And in the Jewish culture, the one who initiated the divorce was the husband. So if he can't shake that suspicion, guess what's going to probably happen to that marriage? It's going to wreck it. It's going to be done. And then that woman is going to be put out. She's going to be in a very destitute situation for the rest of her life. The suspicion could be lethal for the woman because men control the legal matters. They were the ones who were the law, the, the judges, the juries, the executioners. It was men who were, were in charge. Now, we could simply look at all of these cultural frustrations and look and say, well, my culture, our American culture here now in the 21st century does not replicate that. So you know what we should probably do is just skip over numbers five or let's not talk about it anymore. Or better yet, why don't we just remove it and say it's gone? We could do that. We could simply remove the remainders of the past and pretend they've never happened. Or we could work through the cultural changes and the differences between our past and our present in order to learn. We are experiencing that as a culture in our nation just even now. We could remove all the past atrocities, the past things that have occurred in our nation and say we don't want any reminder of that. Or we can learn from it and say, okay, 
what was right, what was wrong, really, in a lot of those things. What do we, what do we learn? The same is true from Numbers 5. We don't skip it. We just say, okay, let's deal with it. Let's understand it. What are some of the struggles? To our modern reader, to us, it seems unfair that a wife who suspects her husband of illicit activities cannot also put him through the same ordeal. It's not given. It is given to the husband to bring his wife that he suspects. It's not vice versa. Again, you're looking and saying, well, that is not fair. Fair. It's not fair. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, totally different civilization, thousands of years ago, this is what happened. It's not, I'm not saying this is what needs to happen. But this is what happened. So we must take into account the makeup of the society within that, where that procedure occurred. It was a, a male-dominated society. It was the men were the ones who made the decisions. The men were the ones who were in charge of the legal matters. They were administered by their dependent females, came under their protection, and came under their jurisdiction. It's highlighted again. We'll see later on in number, Numbers 30. So there was a, uh, a, an order, a hierarchy here, where it was a male-dominated society. We can't get away from that. And so the women have very little at this time legal rights. So the, the men, as I mentioned earlier, they initiated marriage. They initiated the divorce proceedings as well. So it was there. They were the ones who could easily just say, it's not easy, but they could have wrote the bill of divorcement and put the wife away and they were, they were done. Charges of sexual misconduct could lead to capital punishment. In our society today, it's like, okay, yes, it was an indiscretion. Yes, they shouldn't have done it. But we don't put them in the electric chair. We don't give them the needle because of a sexual, a sexual sin. But in, in this time period, that was the case. Women became very vulnerable to potentially lethal suspicion of marital infidelity. Think about the situation as we get to go to Numbers 5. The lady had very little rights. The husband suspects her. The husband has the influence, the good old boys club of the legal matters, though there was righteousness, we, we just can't, good old boys club's probably not the best term. The men would dominate the proceedings. This husband had the right to divorce her. She has very little ground on which to stand when she is suspected, even if innocent, if she is suspected, she had very little ground to stand on. So we have to go to Numbers 5 with this new perspective. To protect the innocent but suspected woman, the woman who was being suspected by her husband, but she is innocent, for an inevitable bias of a male-dominated trial, because the men were going to dominate the trial, God removes their fate from the human jurisdiction. In this situation, what you're going to see is that when the husband brings the wife to the priest, it's actually a gracious act. Because he's like, I don't know. I'm wondering. I need to know. I can't prove it. No one else can prove it. I need God's help in this matter. So they bring, they bring the wife to, the, to God, to the priest. And then at this point, the, the legal choice, the legal uh, consequences, everything that occurs is now completely in the Jewish culture, removed from humanity, 
and it is placed completely in the realm of the divine. It actually gives the woman a greater platform to stand upon because if she is innocent, but she is being suspected, in their, in their human society, she's going to be found guilty. But before God, God can tell and God knows all the circumstances. This is good for the husband and for the faithful wife. Not so much for the unfaithful wife, as we're going to see in a moment. But if the wife is faithful, and for the husband, it's going to set his mind at ease that my wife is faithful. So it helps in a, in a different society, in a different culture, where the, the, the innocent woman would not have had ground to stand upon. It gives her God, in his respect for women, gives them a very gracious ground to stand upon in this situation. And he, he, why, why does this even have to come out? It's because there's great relational unfaithfulness in the camp. Because it was, it, it's not just the sin of the 21st century. It's been around for, for decades, for millennia. It's been present. And so God says, this is how, for this Jewish community, this is how this happened. The, this highlights God's protection and high regard for the safety of ladies. He has a high view of women. He has a high view of men. He has a high view of everybody. God has a high view of humanity, even in our sinful, sinful state. Now, you might go, well, really, it still seems rough. Let me put it in a cultural, another cultural perspective. Hammurabi's code, their practice uh, of that day was this, that if you suspected your wife, then you with some witnesses went out to a cliff where there was a body of water below, and you pushed your wife off of the cliff, and if she survived and was able to swim safely to shore, then she was innocent. If you survived the fall from the cliff, if you didn't have a heart attack, if you knew how to swim because you didn't have really the free time to learn how to swim, if nothing else happens in the, you know, then through all those things, you'll be, you'll be safe. There are other what are called trials by ordeals. I mean, you could go back, you think to the Salem witch trials, how that all worked. But even in this culture, there were, there were other ones where if you suspected, suspected a woman of, of a wrongdoing or of a sexual mis- misconduct, you would place her hand or her foot into like a molten, molten iron. And if she was able to pull it out without burns, then she was innocent. They were all designed around the idea of the woman was guilty. If you as a husband suspected her, you were guilty. There was no real ground for a lady to stand on in the old cultures. But God is going to make a way for these ladies to have a gracious ground to stand upon. God is so much more gracious in his dealings than humanity. So what was, that was the situation, that there is a, a husband who suspects a woman, brings her to uh, the priest. Now the, the ceremony, and this is where it gets weird. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. It gets, it gets a little weird here. So what happens? The husband brings her wife and an offering, a jealousy offering, to the priest. Verse 15. It says, Then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and shall bring her offering for her, the tenth part of an ephah of barley, about two pounds of this barley meal. He shall not pour oil on it, not put frankincense on it. The oil and the frankincense were ideas of joy and excitement in the offering. This is an offering of mourning. There is mourning that has occurred here because there is a suspicion of, of unfaithfulness. For it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. That's really all we know about this offering. 
that it was based upon suspicion, that it was a memorial, not a memorial to what has happened, but it's the idea of to bring, the, to bring it before God, to bring the sin to remembrance, that they offer this to God. And that um, it, was, uh, it was to bring the iniquity. God remembers the sin. God knew if it happened or not. But this was just a gracious way that was saying by the husband, I'm giving to God, petitioning and asking for this memory to be, to be brought back up, the sin. The priest then is going to bring her before the Lord in verse number 16. They're going to enter into the holy place, not the holy of holies. They're going to enter into the tabernacle. And there, the priest is then going to make a potion. I'm going to use that in in quotes. Uh, He's going to make a potion of dust and water, which is going to cause a curse or it's going to be poisonous to the unfaithful, the sinful woman. You're going to see that in verse 16 and verse 18, that they're going to take holy water, probably from the laver. And then they're going to take holy dust from the tabernacle floor. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that this is a magical water. It's holy because it has been set apart to God. The, the, the water, the, the floor, the ground, the area where God is. Remember, God calls the ground that Moses walked upon holy ground. Why? Because God was there in the presence. It was dedicated to God, the tabernacle. And so this, he takes floor from the, water from the laver and dirt from the floor and he's going to mix it together in a in a just a dirty potion just dirty water basically because again it's not the potion it's not the water that is going to do something magical it's that god is being invoked here this is not sorcery it's not magic okay we have to remember that god is miraculously at the center All through this passage, it's about God. It's about bringing the person before God. It is about coming before the Lord. It is the Lord who makes the decisions. It is the Lord who is um, going to be judge and jury, not humanity. It's about the Lord. So the, the Lord is miraculously here. He is to be remembered, and it must be remembered, and that God is in control of the entire situation. The water is not a special potion. But could you see how some of those, the medieval, um, even churches, they would mix up all these concoctions? You start to see it here. I mean, that's what they're to do. She's, they're going to take the holy water, verse 17, put it in an earthen vessel and the dust that's on the floor and the priest is going to take it and put it into the water and then he's going to put it before the woman and she's going to eventually drink it. And if she's unfaithful, it's going to cause her, it talks about her belly to swell and her thigh to rot. What it's going to do is it's going to make her become barren and she's going to maybe have a physical perspective, potentially something that the idea of the belly to swell would make it look like she's perpetually pregnant but never able to give birth. And so it becomes a, a sign to the people as it talks about in the text. You can see how some of these, these older medieval concepts would, would come up in spiritual circles because of this. But don't buy into that. It is looking and saying God is in the center. God is in control. God is going to render the verdict that occurs here. So the ceremony continues. Verse 18, she's supposed to, the priest is then going to uncover her head, let her hair down. And he's going to place the memorial of offering, the, the jealousy offering in her hands. So now she is before the Lord. She is, uh, the, the hair being let down is a symbol of mourning and shame. 
a, a lot more mourning than shame. You see in Leviticus, it talks about when the hairs drop, that it is a mourning time. And so she's, she's in a potential state of mourning. One, because if she's faithful, her husband thinks that she's been unfaithful. And if she's unfaithful, there's mourning and shame because she's been un, un, unfaithful. So there is this, this dynamic of mourning and shame that occurs here. The offering to bring before the Lord is that remembrance offering, to, to remember the offense, to set it before the Lord. And then an oath is going to be given in verse 19. And it, it's, it's important at any time here, I truly believe that the, the guilty woman could have admitted her guilt. But look what happens. Verse 19, 20, and 21 we're going we're gonna to highlight that. It says, And the priest shall charge her by an oath, and say to the woman, If no man have lain with thee, and if thou hast not uh, gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of thy husband, be thou free from this bitter water that causes the curse. I love how the priest starts with the innocence first. There is a presumption of innocence that he is hoping. Love hopes all things. He's hoping that this woman has been faithful and not unfaithful. And if that happens, then she's going to be free from this. The, the water is not going to cause this curse. God's not going to judge her. But if she has gone aside, verse 20, the second one is the guilty part. If she has gone aside instead of thy husband, and if she's been defiled, and some men have lain with thee beside thy husband, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing. And the priest shall say unto the woman, the Lord, again, see it there, the Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people. When the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. And this water that causes the curse shall go into your bowels, into your intestines, your lower sections, to make thy belly to swell, thy thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. The curse is going to be barrenness. We see that in verse 28, the opposite. If she's not guilty, verse 28 says, she shall be free from the curse. She will not be defiled. And she shall conceive seed. She, in other words, will become pregnant. So the, the flip side is uh, fruitfulness, that there is going to be children. The curse side is that there is going to be barrenness. So the ceremony takes place. But did you catch that part in verse number 22? And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly. She had... I say she she understood the curses. Uh, if you understood that and you believe that God was in control in this society at that time, it's happening. The woman who is unfaithful, she had the opportunity to say, "Yes, I was unfaithful. I don't want to experience the curse of God." She had the opportunity, but she said, "Truly, this is what is going to happen." A faithful woman is saying, "Amen, amen. Yes, I have a ground to stand upon." Because this is true and I'm going to be fruitful and I am not going to be unbearable because I have been faithful. But she does have the opportunity to respond, to accept into this and, and to do it. The priest then writes the offense in a book. And then what happens? Verse 23. And the priest shall write, write these curses in a book and then he shall blot them out with the bitter waters. I love that picture that it is going to be dealt with. God is going to deal with it. But even it just, it, it catapulted my mind forward to sins that my name is written. It's not going to be blotted out. Sins that are going to be written down will be remembered no more. They're going to be washed away. All of that. It just, just a little homage to the future of God taking care of sins through his holiness. Man is not, will not deal with this offense. This is now God's jurisdiction. 
No longer is any humanity involved. They have no say. God will deal with. In, in fact, you notice that she's going to become a, a, a sign or that people are going to be able to see her. God is going to use this as a, a billboard, a reminder to other people, to other ladies, to other men to be faithful in their relationships. Normally, if they committed adultery, they were supposed to put them to death. But God uses this unique situation to say, she's not going to be put to death, but she is going to live with an eternal curse. The shame for, for a Hebrew woman, the shame, the uh, disdain by others, the inability to bear children, all of those would be an utter torment that she would continually live with. So man is not going to deal with the offense anymore. God is. The response, immediate or not, we don't know. We don't know if instantly the belly dropped, if that happened, if, or if it would take time. We, we know, though, that through it, that the people would know the difference between whether or not this woman was faithful. The husband would know whether or not his wife was faithful or not. So it could be right away that he then would have that ability to look and go, she has been faithful to me. But the innocent, verse 28, are free and will conceive. That assumes, back to remember the sin we dealt with in the, the second section, there is a reconciliation. There is a restoration of this, this relationship. That even after suspicion, even after jealousy, the, the, the wife and the husband could be restored. And so there was a, a restoration that took place. And then verses 29 through 31 give us the summary. You have the summary of the, the text that occurs after the woman is free. Uh, this is the law of jealousy or the law of suspicion. When a wife hath go, goeth aside to another instead of her husband and is defiled, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and be jealous over his wife and shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute upon her all this law. Then shall the man be guiltless from the iniquity and this woman shall bear her iniquity. So it just sums up that if she's guilty, she's guilty. And if she's not, there's a, a restoration of that relationship that occurs. And so that that is good for the man and the woman to be guiltless. For the, the man who is guiltless and the woman who is not, it's not good for that woman. And it's not good for the man either because the relationship is going to be hurt that, that is going to occur there. Again, we, we've said this a couple times with the book of Numbers already. So what? <laughs> but I think when we look at the whole of the text, what is God driving at with the book of Numbers? All of that happening, he wanted to see faithfulness in the relationships. He wanted to see God at the center. He wanted to see spiritual holiness. He needed physical cleanliness, the respect and the care and concern for others. I think we can walk away with these two points. People, a clean and a holy community, they have this. And this, this applies to us very much so. For our community, our body, to be clean we need to have people who seek to live peaceably with mankind. Whether it's a concern for, I might be sick, I don't want to share it. I want to be respectful of others who may have a different perspective than I do on whether or not I should wear masks or not wear masks. I'm going to live peaceably with them. 
I'm not going to become vengeful and hurtful and mean-spirited if somebody has a different opinion than I do on this matter. But I am going to, if I find myself in a situation where I think, this is, this is me personally, if I feel that I've been exposed, you're not going to see me for a little bit. Why? Because I care about you. And I think that is the right perspective. It, it, even for the concern about mankind, to restore relationships in that second part, verses 5 to 10, where if I have wronged, I need to make it right. I need to seek to make it right. If I need to make some sort of restitution to do that and to not look for the cheap way out, but to really deal with it and to, to address the issues. And I need to live peaceably with God. I need, to, I need to look to say, this is what God has said. This is what God has commanded. All three of these sections start the same way. God wants to see relational faithfulness. God wants to see spiritual holiness. God wants to see us concerned and caring for humanity and for people. That's what God expects. And so if I'm going to live peaceably with God, I have to follow his conditions. I have to follow his commands. So we look at this text and I ask you this. Has the ripple effect of God's holiness impacted your camp? your home, your life, your legacy. How are people going to remember you? God has, has saved us. He has bought us with a price. We are not our own. We are to live to glorify him. The ripple effect of his holiness is to expand throughout our life. Has God's holiness impacted how you live? Thanks for joining us this week. We're going to look into number six next week, and I hope you'll be able to join us as we look at what about these Nazarites and how does holy, the holiness of God impact their own personal life. Have a great day.